Welcome, podcast listeners. We have a fantastic episode for you today. Last year, when we published The Best Investment Writing, Volume 2, we offered authors the opportunity to record an audio version of their chapter to be released as a segment of the podcast. And listeners loved it. This year, we're bringing you the entire volume of The Best Investment Writing, Volume 3, in podcast format. You'll hear from some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers all over the world. Enough from me. Let's get to our guests and let them take over this special episode. Hi, this is Jack Vogel. I'm the CIO of Alpha Architect. Alpha Architect is an asset management firm based in Philadelphia, PA, focusing mainly on factor investing, such as value and momentum. To learn more about us, you can find us at alphaarchitect.com. I'm going to read a piece titled, Trust the Process. This is a piece I wrote in mid-2018, and it goes back and talks about my belief as a Philadelphian fan in trusting the process. So here we go. Trust the Process. As a native Philadelphian and huge basketball fan, I fully agree with the 76ers fans' rally cry. Trust the process. Even the players, such as Joel Embiid, have echoed the sentiment of the fans. He loves this saying during the, the home games. So for those not in Philly and not too familiar with the NBA, Trust the Process just explains the 76ers rebuilding process under former 76ers GM Sam Hinkie. And if one simply goes to Google and types in Trust the Process, you're going to see an image of Sam Hinkie on the front page. And so in Sam's mind, as well as many who watch the NBA, a valid theory is to win a championship, you just need a superstar player. Coaches can help, but superstar players are the most important. You might say, well, what's the evidence for this? So what I do is I say, consider since the 1983 season, happens to be the last 76ers championships, I list 11 players who had multiple championships. It's Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Isaiah Thomas, Michael Jordan, Elijah Wan, Tim Duncan, Shaq, Kobe, LeBron, Steph, and KD. The only three missing championships in, from 1983 until now was the 04 Pistons, which again was a great defensive team with five really good players. The 08 Celtics had the big three of KG, Pierce, and Ray Allen. And the 2011 Mavericks, where Dirk took down LeBron in his first finals as a Heat. So what you can notice is that of the 11 players that I just listed, they accounted for 32 of the past 36 championships, which is around 93%. So where does trusting the process come into play with regards to the 76ers, right? So examining this from the 76ers perspective, let's go through steps. Win a championship is your goal, right? So your goal is one, win a championship. Second, what's the process and logic? Well, their logic at that point in time was to intentionally lose, essentially, in order to increase the probability of getting a high draft pick. Well, why would you do that? Well, remember that 93% of championships went to superstars, and superstars generally get selected higher in the draft. So by doing this, it's giving you a higher chance of getting a superstar. And then the third part, which is the rallying cry, is trust the process, right? So the 76ers fan during this multiple seasons of losing came up with a slogan of trust the process and kind of became a rallying cry. 
So this is mainly an investing podcast. So how in the world does trusting the process apply to investing? Well, are there any parallels? So as I outlined above, I'm going to go through the same three steps that the 76ers use, which is, you know, what is the goal? So first, you need to outline a goal for your portfolio. Second, you need to create a process backed by logic. And then the third is you need to ask the really hard question, actually, can you stick with the process? And in my opinion, the longer I've been doing this, that third question of can I trust the process yields wildly different behavioral effects and conclusions when comparing building an MBA team to an investment process. So let's consider the following trust the process questions in both contexts. Can you trust the process set forward by Sam Hinkie to rebuild the 76ers? Pretty quick answer, yes. Why? Because when you watch the 76ers and see Joel Embiid dominating games, it's pretty obvious that that was a good suggestion and good way to move forward. Now let's turn towards investing. Can I trust the process set forward by my research or advisor for my investments? Here the answer becomes a lot murkier, and it is not as clear-cut as watching an NBA dominate other opponents. So below, I'm going to go through three different investing examples of ways that one can invest. And I'm going to highlight the same three things I talked about above, which is what is the goal, what is the process, and then third, can you trust the process? And these are very common strategies that people have, but I'm going to go through and show you that trusting the process is probably the hardest part. So let's go into my three examples. Example one, invest in stocks. So for anyone looking to invest, they first need to ask, what is the goal? So let's assume that the goal is the following. Achieve the highest returns possible. You understand and are willing to take additional risk, but not some crazy unreasonable risk, as measured by the standard deviation of returns. Let's also assume we have a home country bias and we're going to exclude real estate. Thus, as an investor, we're going to go and examine three asset classes that most people look at. U.S. stocks, U.S. 10-year bonds, and U.S. treasury bills. So pretty simple. Stocks, bonds, bills. So remember, given the goal of achieving the highest returns possible while being able to accept volatility, let's examine the second step, which is to come up with a process to achieve this goal. Right. And so in order to do that, let's examine the past and see what happened. So in order to examine the past, I show the annualized returns from 1927 to 1999. And what you see is that U.S. stocks returned 11%, bonds returned around 5%, and cash returned around 3.75%. So given the average returns over a seven-year period show that stocks did much better than bonds and cash, the process seems rather simple invest in stocks, right? So let's pretend on 19, uh, you know, December 31st, 1999, an advisor walks in the door with a nice suit and tries to convince you to give them money to manage. And what they do is, you know, with this nice suit, they show you a table and they, of course, make it non-log scale just to annoy a lot of FinTwit people and also to highlight that we don't understand the power of compounding. And what this chart's going to show is the growth of $100 invested in the S&P 500, bonds, and cash. 
And what you see is that $100 invested in 1927 becomes $219,000 in 1999. Your alternatives, bonds and cash, would have only yielded you $3,700 or $1,500. So this seems like a slam dunk, right? And then in addition to the chart above, you hear through the news and from your neighbors that they made a ton of money in new tech stocks. So you've been primed to make the plunge into stocks and you sign up with your new advisor. Now let's say even a more conservative advisor comes in to try to sell you a stock portfolio. However, since they want to make sure you fully understand what volatility means, they show you the annual performance of stocks, and you note that there's some big years with massive losses. Since there's 1930, where you lose 26%, 1931, you're down 45, 37, you're down 36%, and 1973 and 74, down in total around 40%. So they do this in an attempt to be upfront and honest and let you know that stocks can be very volatile. And you can potentially have very large drawdowns. But let's say, however, given this information, you note that while stocks can be very volatile and have large drawdowns, you have a long time horizon, 10 years. So you plunge in and, and invest in stocks. You even go to Vanguard. as You've read that they're the, no one can beat the market. So you simply invest in the S&P 500 mutual fund, moving your portfolio out of cash and bonds. So going back to my three steps, let's go through. First is you have to come up with a goal. And here the goal was compound your money at the highest rate possible. Second is what is the process and logic to meet this goal? The process here was to invest in stocks, right? The logic is though, even though they're volatile, have large drawdowns, they had the highest rate of return in the past. And people have told you about this thing called the equity risk premium. Third, can you trust the process? This is the hardest one. So let's examine the next 10 years of returns to our three asset classes. And what I show is the returns from January 1st of 2000 through December 31st of 2009. We're going to assume there's no transaction costs or management fees. U.S. stocks over this time period returned negative 68 basis points or negative 0.68%. Meanwhile, bonds returned at 8.21% and bills returned 2.77%. These are all, again, compound annual growth rates. So again, next 10 years, stocks negative 68 basis points, bonds up 8%. And so I show you this invested growth over the next 10 years on a chart. And what you notice is that bonds go up to around $225. Stocks are below 100, assuming you invested 100. So what do you do after experiencing a 10-year stretch of horrible underperformance of stocks relative to cash and bonds? Question, can you trust the process? For some people, unfortunately, the answer might have been no. Right? And for those who have stayed invested, I plotted and show the returns from January 1st of 2010 through December 31st of 2017. And what you see is that over this next eight-year period, U.S. stocks returned almost 14%, whereas bonds gave you 3.67% and cash gave you 20 basis points, pretty much zero. So luckily for stockholders, the more recent returns were most likely in line with the original expectations, higher returns than both cash 
and bonds. These results also highlight that at the moment when one potentially would make a change or alter the process, this sometimes may be a bad time to do so. What I then do is show the results over the full 18-year sample, January 1st of 2000 to December 31st of 2017. And what we see is actually over this time period, stocks still underperformed. They returned 5.58%, whereas bonds with much less volatility yielded 6.17%. Right. So over this 18-year period, even with these very good returns up till the end of 2017, you notice that stocks still lost to bonds. Now, that was not even a consideration or a thought process 18 years ago, going back to 2000. Now, I did probably cherry pick that example, but the answer is yes, and I did this intentionally. And given how long the time period examined, right, there's a low probability that January 1st, 2000 would have been the starting point to invest all of your money into the market. However, I did this intentionally to show that stocks can underperform at some point. And it brings us back to the original question. Can you trust the process? And better yet, really, did you even understand the process when you initially invested? You know, and the answer is probably not, but it's always a good time to learn. First off, why should anyone even expect stocks to outperform bonds in the first place? This is actually a great question. And this is the so-called equity premium puzzle, which really is the inability of most standard economic models to understand and figure out why stocks have outperformed bonds over the past hundred years. And so without getting into too much detail, a reasonable explanation is that since stocks are more volatile and investors are risk averse, equities have rewarded the riskier investment with higher returns. Yes, markets are pretty efficient. One receives a higher reward for taking on additional risk. So to the extent that stocks are riskier than bonds in the future, we one could reasonably expect and demand a higher rate of return in an efficient market. Thus, equity investors should generally continue to trust the process if the goal is a higher rate of return, while you also do have to accept volatility. But what if one not only wanted to invest in stocks, but you want to be like Warren Buffett and try to beat the stock market? How can you go about trying to achieve this goal? We examine this below. So example two of reasonable processes is trying to beat the benchmark. So once one decides to invest in stocks, there are two approaches. Invest passively in the market cap weighted portfolio or secondly, attempt to beat the benchmark. So if you invest passively, this can be done very cheaply using mutual funds and ETS that charge very low management fees. It's almost zero nowadays. For those that attempt a strategy to beat the benchmark, they can do this, however, in two ways. You can make your own stock selection or you can use ETFs or mutual funds that have some strategy. But the goal here is actually pretty simple. Invest in stocks while attempting to beat the benchmark. Now, given that this is the goal, is there a process, our second step, that we can follow in an attempt to beat the benchmark? So we're going to start with the assumption, which I think is accurate, that just randomly picking stocks is a bad idea. So with that baseline assumption, let's turn to the evidence in the past 
what systematic strategies have been shown to work. So after reading the journals in the 1990s, you can come away with the conclusion that a few strategies worked in the past. First is value investing, which is purchasing stocks that are cheaper on some measure, such as the price of the stock divided by its earnings, like the P-E ratio. The second is momentum investing, purchasing stocks that have done the best over the past year while exa when examining the total return over the past year. This is standard momentum portfolio. And then you say, okay, appears to work. What is the actual evidence? And again, I'm going to plot the returns to top and bottom decile sorted on value or momentum from 1927 to 2017. This data is taken from Ken French's website. And so I'm gonna, we're going to look at five portfolios, the market, just S&P 500, value, which are the cheap stocks rebalanced annually, growth, which are the expensive stocks rebalanced annually. The fourth and fifth portfolios are high and low momentum. High momentum is basically the top decile of firms ranked every month on the past total returns over the past 12 months, ignoring last month. Low momentum, these are the losing stocks. They had the worst returns over the past year. And what you notice is over this 90-year time period, 1927 to 2017, you see that the S&P returned 10%. Value returned around 12. Growth was 8.75%. High momentum was 16.7. And low momentum was negative 1.38%. So based on the evidence, there are a few takeaways. First, I think everyone would agree, is never invest in low momentum stocks, right? Second is in the past, value outperformed growth and the market. Again, these are all paper portfolios. Third, in the past, high momentum outperformed low momentum and the market. Now, definitely trading costs are going to have an impact, right? And I have a link, uh, which Meb will post, to a detailed discussion on factor investing and trading costs. It is a true fact that trading costs will eat away at returns, and there are not unlimited scales on factor investing. However, whether or not or how long and how much money these strategies can take is an argument that people have been having back and forth. So for those interested, you might want to read that article. But let's assume one is comfortable that the value and momentum factors are going to survive trading costs. In addition, you read some academic literature that says value worked in the past, such as FOM and French, as well as LSV. You do the same for momentum. So based on the evidence, your process, once again, is pretty simple. Invest in value and momentum stocks. So going back to our three steps, we have the following. Your goal is to invest in stocks with an attempt to beat the benchmark. Right? So goal, beat the benchmark. Process and logic. Second step, you're going to invest in value and momentum portfolios. What is the logic here? The evidence showed that in the past, these portfolios outperformed the benchmark. And there's research showing these premiums appear to exist due to either risk or behavioral errors. Third, can you trust the process? Once again, this is the tricky part. Why is this difficult? When someone simply examines summary statistics, such as what I mentioned above, 
They are just that, summary statistics. But the journey along is not a summary statistic, and the journey is just as important. So what do I mean by this? For example, what I show you are the returns to value, momentum, and the market since 2008, January 1st of 2008. This is the past 10 years going to the end of 2017. Exact same portfolios from Ken French's website. What you see is the market, the S&P 500, returned 8.62%, whereas value and momentum both lost to the market. Value returned 4.95%, and momentum returned 8.36%. So over the past 10 years, our two processes, value and momentum, underperformed the benchmark. And not only that, the benchmark costs next to nothing. It's pretty much free. So for 10 years, one would have spent either additional time running the portfolios on their own, or you would have paid management fees, all in exchange for a lower rate of return. In addition, this has happened in other 10-year periods in the past as well, not just the most recent 10 years. Big question, can you still trust the process? At this point, it's fine to ask tough questions. Why would one expect value stocks to outperform in the first place? So academics have been studying this for decades, right? And they believe it's due to two things, either risk, which is that value stocks are inherently riskier, or behavior, that investors are overreacting to accounting information, potentially driving the prices too low for value and too high for growth. Similar arguments are made for momentum investing. However, to be clear and upfront, investing in value and momentum is not the same as investing in the index. There's going to be tracking error, and potentially the factor might not work in the future, even over 10-year periods. However, if you believe that value and momentum stocks are inherently riskier than the market in general, you could reasonably demand a higher rate of return in the future. Secondly, if investors appear to still be making systematic behavioral errors, such as overreaction for value, underreaction for momentum, this would add to the returns in the future. So we believe the value and momentum have a chance to continue to work in the future, but again, not everyone has to agree. So as we point out here, systematic factor investing can be simple, but definitely not easy. There's a post by Wes, which we'll send a link to. And so my third example of attempting to trust the process and showing you that can be really hard is trying to reduce drawdowns and volatility. And so, of course, I call this the holy grail of investing. High returns with no drawdowns. We get emails all the time from people asking they just want a 10% rate of return with no volatility. Unfortunately, I have to tell them that that does not exist. And I send them and make sure that they understand that anyone telling you that you should probably run away. So who doesn't want the holy grail of investing? High returns, no drawdowns. So we have a third goal, right? And so this is my third example, trying to achieve stock-like returns with lower drawdowns. But is there a way to achieve this goal? We already stated that from 2000 to 2009, U.S. stocks had a negative return. In fact, this was a horrible time to begin investing in stocks. 
Now, what if on January 1st of 2010, someone walks into your door and says the following, my approach is really simple. I invest in stocks when the market's trending up and I get out of stocks when the market's trending down. Sounds reasonable. But what are the results? You know, you ask the person, hey, that sounds reasonable, but you know, how did this thing do? Luckily for you, the advisor has a piece of paper showing back test of returns from 2000, January 1st, 2000, to December 31st of 2009. Four portfolios are pretty simple. S&P 500 with trend. Basically, if the price return is above its average, you're invested. If not, you go to cash. Very simple. Second is S&P 500. Third is EFI or International Developed Markets with trend. The fourth is EFI. And what are the returns from January 1st, 2000 to December 31st of 2009? What you see is kind of amazing. And it was a good time to be a trend investor. The S&P or U.S. stocks with trend was actually up 5.64%, while the S&P buy and hold your Vanguard portfolio was down negative 6.8%. This is annualized. Worst, looking at drawdowns, the trend portfolio only had a max drawdown of 14%, whereas the S&P went down 50%. Turning our evidence towards international, we see that EFI or international stocks with trend was up 10.5% with only 14% drawdown, whereas buy and hold Vanguard style EFI was only up 1% annualized with a 57% drawdown. So on the U.S., you would have outperformed by 6%. International would have outperformed by 9%. Again, given this information, this appears to be the holy grail of investing. Higher returns, lower standard deviations, and most importantly, lower drawdowns. Where do I sign up? So now, again, given that we potentially had this holy grail, we go back to our steps. Our goal, which is our first step, is to achieve stock-like returns with lower drawdowns. Second, we have to come up with reasonable process and logic. So we're gonna, our process here is to invest in stocks, but apply trend-following rules. Based on human psychology, this appears to be logical, as almost everything in life ebbs and flows. You're just going to follow the trend. And apparently, it worked over the past 10 years. Third, can you trust the process? So at the outset, some people probably even dismissed that question. Can you trust the process? After all, this seems like a slam dunk. So after implementing the strategy on January 1st of 2010, how has a trend following portfolio done? We examine this below. The returns I show here are from January 1st of 2010 through the end of 2017. If we went to the end of March of 2019, It'd be even worse. The S&P with trend was up around 9%, whereas the S&P 500 was up 14%. You lost around 5% by using trend, and your drawdown was about the same. Internationally, trend-following portfolio was up around 2.85%, whereas buy and hold was up 6.25%. So one gave up around 3.5% annualized internationally. So 5% in the U.S., 3.5% internationally. 
So the results above highlight that over the past eight years, a trend follow portfolio has underperformed this free Vanguard benchmark. And then to add insult to injury, you probably also paid additional taxes because trend following potentially caused you to sell. Of course, you could use tax efficient solutions, but that's beside the point. Question, can you trust the process? So once again, we need to sit back and say, examine our process. Does it really make sense to invest in a trend-following portfolio? Right? After all, academics for years have argued that trend-following is worthless and it's a waste of our time. Maybe you should just listen to the ivory tower or at least get a better understanding as to why they say trend-following is worthless. So what exactly are they, are they testing? Well, when academics compare trend-following to buy and hold, to examine whether or not the sequence, the return sequence or sharp ratios are statistically significant from one another. In general, they don't find any difference, which means you can just do buy and hold and you're going to get similar to trend. And again, this is depending on the way you look at the data. You could also say, hey, you could also just do, it's pointless to do buy and hold relative to trend. However, the assumption is just buy and hold is your standard portfolio. So to dig into trend following a little more, Let's look at some other asset classes. What I show are the returns to five main asset classes, U.S. stocks, international stocks, bonds, REITs, and commodities. And while doing this on the podcast, let me just give you the overview. S&P with trend, this is from January 1st of 1973 to the end of 2017. And what one finds is that over this time period, again, on paper portfolios, no management fees, no transaction costs. However, these are reasonable liquid portfolios. What you find is that generally over that time period, a long time period, the returns on the trend portfolio are similar to the buy and hold portfolio with lower drawdowns. Let me walk you through a few of the numbers. U.S. stocks, 10.5% buy and hold, 10.87% trend. Drawdowns, 50% for U.S. stocks, 23% for trend. Again, these are worse drawdowns. International stocks, 8.49% for buy and hold, 9.85% for trend. Drawdowns, 57% for buy and hold, 21% for trend. Bonds are pretty similar. 7.75% for buy and hold. Trend, 7.67%, slightly lower. The drawdown actually still gets cut in half from negative 21% to negative 11%. REITs, buy and hold, 11.94%. Trend, 11.57%, so slightly worse. However, your drawdown went from negative 68% to negative 21%. And last, commodities yielded 5.84%, while trend yielded 8.12%. However, your drawdown using trend goes from negative 81% on buy and hold to negative 57% with trend. So as I showed, the annualized returns to trend follow portfolios over long time cycles appear to be not that much different than buy and hold. So this is why academics are going to argue that using against using trend following because the two are similar. 
right? Academics also generally don't care about maximum drawdowns as they prefer to focus on volatility or risk-adjusted returns such as the Sharpe ratio. At one point, I had a paper, it's actually still on SSRN, saying how maximum drawdown should be a measure, and this was not accepted too well by the academic community. Now, at a high level, if you believe buy and hold is the best way to invest, that's great. If you cannot accept large drawdowns, trend following is one approach to attempt to lower the drawdowns in any asset class. However, as I show above, and actually in more recent posts I have following on, this is no free lunch. If you invest in trend-following portfolios during a time where there's no large drawdowns, it's probably going to underperform buy-and-hold portfolios. This is due to whipsaws, where the trend-following rules get you out of the asset class, only to see the price rebound quickly. So again, trend-following is a decent approach, but it's not perfect and definitely will not work all the time. For more details on trend-following, I send you an article with all the details on our systems as well as just simple rules and how they did. So now I get to the conclusion. So in our basketball example, it was pretty easy to ascertain whether or not the process made sense. Seeing Joel and B dunk over someone or have a great rundown block is visible. It's right there in front of you. Similarly in life, most processes generate quick results that are visible. For example, let's say your goal is to lose weight and your process is to eat better and work out more. If you do this for a couple weeks, you're going to see results, which can lead you to trust the process. So when it comes to investing, answering the question, can I trust the process, can be very hard. Sometimes the process will not work for long time periods, which can make it even harder to follow. So the three examples I give were not necessarily out of the blue. These are approaches to investing that we believe in. First, stocks had higher returns than bonds in the past. We believe that the premium will probably exist in the future. This is a reasonable assumption. Second, value and momentum are two systematic ways that one can attempt to beat the benchmark. Trend following, third, is a decent attempt to lower drawdowns on any asset class. So we're fans of equity as well as value and momentum trend factors. Now, the goal of this article was to highlight that even though We believe these things. Trusting the process can be very hard. So in each example, I tried to show you a bad, almost the worst scenario for these three beliefs we have in an attempt to give a better description of what the process is up front in an attempt to minimize regret in the future. So in general, the best solution is probably to assess the information in a calm setting, come to a conclusion about approach, and then sit back and trust the process. I hope you enjoy the article. 